Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Thank you, Joseph. Welcome, everybody. It's Training with Casey, and I'm your host, Casey Covert. And tonight I'm really excited about this podcast. It's a not a usual podcast. And what we're doing tonight is this is a shout out to all the people that I have ever worked with. If you have worked with me in any capacity at all, whether it was, you know, administrative support or you were an intern or a volunteer or a docent or a young person that I worked with or in one of the classes I TA'd or I don't care what it is, I would love to be in contact. I would love to hear how you are, what you did with your experiences, maybe even if it wasn't too traumatic, to talk about what it was like to work together from your perspective. And just at the National Zoo, we had 120 docents. And a docent is somebody that uh, is on hand to help other people have a more, a richer, more significant experience. So they studied about the animals and about the training techniques, and they were there to explain things to the visitors and to answer questions, to point out things that maybe they would have missed otherwise. These people did so much for our zoo audiences. And then there were the keeper volunteers who were docent, uh, excuse me, um, interns or regular volunteers. And in the first five years I was at the National Zoo, these keeper volunteers contributed over 15,000 man hours. That's seven and a half work years, I believe. And that's amazing. And they did a good job. They were so good that when I went on vacation or had to leave for some reason, rather than cover my area with another keeper, they would let these volunteers run the unit. And they were pretty young, They're pretty young. And some of them went on to work in the field and maybe some did and I didn't know about it and some didn't. I found out that one of the people that was a an intern went on to be a veterinarian and uh, one with a fair amount of prestige in the field. I was very proud to learn what she had made of her life. It's amazing. And let's say it was just a lark for you. You just came and you spent you know, some time one summer and you had a good time. Or, you know, if you didn't, I guess I want to know that too. I hope you had a great time. I did. But in any case, Whoever you are, however we know each other, we have lost track over the years. I would love 
to be in contact. So here's what inspires me. I also had mentors and these people opened such doors for me. And I learned so much and got connected and it was just wonderful. But when I left, I was very busy. I had to make a living. I had to find a job and move across country and, you know, figure out adulting, which by the way, I never did. I'm still working on that. And I didn't feel like I was important to the people that I had worked with. And I didn't want to bother them. I knew that they were, you know, uh, highly respected, famous, in demand. I remember when I worked at Scripps, I used to see famous people lining up outside Dr. Jerry Coyman's office just to talk to him, you know, just to get a chance to meet him, or maybe they had met him already. And uh, I didn't really think that Dr. Coyman would ever want to be in touch again or anything like that. But as the years went by, I realized that I really cared about my interns. I really cared what they did with their lives and, you know, how they chose what paths they took. And so I was back in San Diego in 2016 and I was able to make contact with Dr. Jerry Coyman and I spent an afternoon at his lab during which time I distinguished myself by losing my credit card in the bathroom of all places. But anyway, it all came out fine. And, uh, I had a great afternoon and I videoed all this stuff. I videoed stories that we traded and it was really gratifying to me because there were things that I remembered happening that he didn't, even stories. And I'll tell you one of those stories was that um, he had taken his sons out to the Privilof Islands and they were studying uh, Alaskan fur seals or northern fur seals. And one of his sons stood up and it stampeded all the animals. And I was a little tense because uh, with a lot of the animals, if you're a little taller, you're a little intimidating. And so as soon as you stand up on a seal rookery, that can be, yeah, a call to action, right? Anyway, there were so many stories and so many experiences, like the time the pilot whales came into La Jolla Cove and we got permission to run out on the Scripps Pier, go down the Jacobs Ladder, get on the whaler and go out into the middle of these pilot whales. Oh my, what an opportunity of a lifetime. I remember sitting in that boat and being just like, you know, a foot or so away from these ranks of pilot whales. So the pilot whales were hunting something. I think it was probably squid 
but um, I'm no expert, but they approached the boat in lines and the whales were probably about, I don't know, about six feet apart. And then all of a sudden they'd all exhale and they dive all together at once. And then they'd come up again and, you know, maybe the, they were kind of far away and then they would be like 10 feet closer and then 10 feet closer and they'd be right by the boat and then they go under the boat. It was amazing. And these are very intelligent whales, but they can be aggressive. And we didn't have any problems with that. And this is before the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So we were totally legal and we weren't harassing or anything. We were just sitting out in the cove in this whaler watching. And there were so many other things like that. Now there's other people I work with and I would love to hear what you're doing. Uh, people I worked with at the zoo, um, people I knew in the Navy program that were you know, working with um, breeding the dolphins out at um, Kailua or at uh, Point Magoo doing research. Um, Dr. Sam Ridgeway was the veterinarian for the Navy, the head veterinarian for the Navy at Point Magoo and came to UCSD where I was a student and gave an introduction on what the military was doing with marine mammals. Now, the only person I had told was my mother that I was planning to be a dolphin trainer from the time I was nine years old and I saw Flipper. And I went to school at UCSD because it was right down the road from Scripps and they did research on marine mammals there and that kind of thing. And I saw this presentation by Dr. Ridgeway, and it was amazing. He told us about the things that they did and, you know, what they discovered about the physiology of these diving animals. He showed us pictures of Tuffy, and Tuffy was a remarkable case for two reasons. One was that this is the dolphin that showed us what happens to dolphins when they dive deep and how dive, how deep could they dive. But before I tell you that, I want to tell you the other thing that I found really significant about Tuffy because Tuffy was actually a tough character. Could be how he got his name. He was not impressed with the people and he didn't want to get involved in their silly little programs until he met a person. And I'm sorry to say I never did meet this person, but to me, she's famous. And her name was Deborah, Debbie or Deborah. And I believe they called her Deb. Anyway, um, she connected with Tuffy until she came on the scene. Tuffy was unapproachable, but with her, he, he engaged and he agreed to do this tough project. 
And what it was is they had lines that descended from the surface. You know, they have weights on them or whatever to uh, anchor them to the ground. And they put some kind of uh, rigging on these lines so that they could send a um, something down to a certain depth for Tuffy to be able to activate a camera and take a picture of himself. And they, they have this kind of thing, like, you know, you can collect water from various depths and they have the equipment to do that. And I think it was something like that. And they just added a camera. Well, anyway, it turns out that Tuffy was able to dive to 1000 feet and he took a picture of himself. I believe it might've been the very first selfie. This was like, uh, gosh, late 60s, early 70s. I heard about it in, I think, 1973. Well, anyway, um, so what happened to a dolphin at 1,000 feet? Amazing. Their rib cage is mostly cartilage. As I recall, I think it's... Uh, two-thirds cartilage and one-third bone. And their airways are made so that as the water pressure compresses their body, they have these stronger airways, you know, they're uh, reinforced with cartilage and so forth. And it allows any air in the lungs to get squeezed up into the airways rather than compressed into the tissues where the animals could suffer from nitrogen bubbles. And so we got to see that very, very graphically because here is this picture of Tuffy and he didn't look like a dolphin. He looked like a dang accordion. His size just kind of dented in and it was just amazing. I mean, I'd heard people describe the changes that happened to the animals as they dove deeper and deeper, but to see it was absolutely amazing. So I heard about this for the first time from Dr. Ridgway when he gave this presentation and I decided that was it. I was going to go do that. So my diving instructor, Rick Matthews, who fortunately I am in touch with, Although I haven't gotten a chance to actually talk to him in, in uh, over, sheesh. Oh, come on. 76, 86, 96, 2006, over 40 years. It can't be that long. Well, anyway, um, he's the one that helped me find my way to Scripps and working in Coyman's lab. And uh, Rick was my diving instructor and he was a really excellent diving instructor. And I was so lucky to get that introduction because uh, Rick worked in research also and with marine mammals. And he knew that if we were studying diving, connected with UCSD and Scripps Institution of Oceanography, 
we might very well be using diving in our work. We might be doing research and deep, you know, mixed gas diving, that kind of stuff. And he really gave us a workout. I forget how long our swim was, but it was long. And we had to go, but I think this was standard. Um, at least two Olympic pool lengths swimming underwater without taking a breath. And that was a stretch. We had to do a surf rescue where <laughs> search rescue, let me tell you about the um a couple other ones. I'll tell you about the search rescue rescue last. We had to learn to get into the water. You know, this is all tide pools with rocks up against cliffs, and the water visibility often was not very great. And so we had to learn what that was like before they set us loose, because if we only dived dove on nice days, then the first time that we ran into that kind of a problem, then what? You know, we could panic and do something crazy and cause our own deaths from fear or something. So there were conditions that they made sure that we experienced low visibility, uh, choppy water, a night dive. All of these things were amazing experiences and Rick brought us safely and I hope competently through all of them. But the most difficult, challenging, difficult on various levels was the surf rescue. So with the surf rescue, we had to go out with a buddy beyond where all the breakers were breaking and they had to faint. Whether they fainted or not, they had to faint. And we had to give them mouth to mouth resuscitation. And this was before, you know, AIDS and all those kinds of concerns. But I remember, no disrespect to whoever else was in my class, but somebody in my class was a guy and he kept asking the girls if they would be partners with him. And um, I don't even remember if he asked me, but he definitely asked my partner and she had a boyfriend and all this stuff. And she just looks at me. She goes, I'm not gay. Are you gay? And I'm like, no, I'm not gay. Now, I don't care if somebody is gay, but, you know, whatever. And she goes, okay, let's be partners. I'm like, all right, you got it. So this was the real thing. We had to actually breathe for this person. And we had to bring them in on our shoulder, through the surf, and deliver them safely on the beach, where then hopefully they could recover from the trauma of the artificial resuscitation, whether they needed it or not. We did so many fun things, so many great experiences. Um, one of the things that happened on one of the dives is that we were out on the uh, canyon off of uh, La Jolla and Rick was very uh, near me in the water, but a giant manta went over, well, went by, kind of over by, and I think he just dipped down into the canyon. 
Ooh, it is so tempting to try to follow something like that, to watch it. Not a good idea. As you go deeper into a canyon, canyon, your body compresses and you get denser. And so you were neutrally buoyant before, but you can actually start sinking. And if you didn't realize what was happening and drop your weight belt or whatever, uh, you could just, you know, fall to your death and drown from sinking it under deep water. And even if you figured it out in time and dropped your weight belt, and were, you know, if you couldn't overcome the sinking by swimming, you would have to drop your weight belt, but then you're going to shoot up to the surface and then you might get the bends. Diving is not for the drifty. Although I'm sure some divers drift where they don't intend to. Anyway, that was my diving, some of my diving experiences there. I worked in various medical research labs. One time I talked my sister into going with me and I had to do an experiment where every 15 minutes I had to wake up and do something with little rats. And so I talked my sister into coming with me and they had a sofa outside the lab and I had to do this experiment all night long. And I told her, you can sleep on the sofa outside the lab and I'll do the experiment. And I think I finished the experiment about two or three in the morning. And um, so I got the cot out and covered up with a blanket and went to sleep. I was exhausted. And I realized at that time, I didn't really do my sister a favor by letting her have the sofa. It stank. That was needed upholstery. Anyway, I go to sleep and all of a sudden, there's two men yelling at me. They're over my head and they're yelling down at me. What are you doing here? Blah, blah, blah. You shouldn't be here. Who's your boss? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm not an early morning person. And especially when I've been up till two or three in the morning and I'm trying to regain my dignity as if I ever had it, I guess. But anyway, I kind of just casually extend my arm out on this cot and lean my head on my hand so I can look up at these two people. One is a police officer and one is the janitor. And they're yelling at me that I shouldn't be by myself in that building overnight. And of course, it didn't really help that I pointed out my sister was there too. So they're still yelling. And while they're yelling, the cot collapses under my elbow. Now I'm still out there leaning on my arm, suspended mostly over air. But it was just awkward. What do you do once that happens? If I move my arm, the whole cot might collapse. And these guys didn't even notice it. They just kept yelling at me. And finally they said, okay, we're going to make sure you get home and don't you ever do this again. Okay, you know, fine. I have no idea what the repercussions were for my boss. I know that I wanted to do this experiment. I wanted to be, you know, responsible and trusted and contribute and all that. But it's the last time I did something like that. 
Now, there were other experiments I didn't want to relate to, but if you're any of those people, I would still love to uh, connect and hear from you and find out what you did with your life. And one of these was a, an RH antigen lab, so immunopathology. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I faint at the sight of blood, even just a little bit. I remember I was cutting a flower to put on my hummingbird feeder and I cut my finger. So I put my finger under the water and all that blood billowed out and I just dropped to the ground. And the next thing was this horrible smell of ammonia. My dad, who had been in Vietnam, had plenty of smelling salts and uh, brought them to my benefit. So I popped up and it wasn't really a very big injury. It was more like a paper cut. So it didn't have to be a severe injury or a lot of blood. I was very ready to collapse at the sight of blood. So I go into this lab and here are a bunch of like, you know, two liter beakers on little um, stirring platforms. And the stirs are going around and around and around in these vats of blood. They might have only been one liter, but in my mind, they were half a gallon or even a gallon. Could have been a 55-gallon barrel. Anyway, I fainted. I think I fainted. If I didn't all the way faint, I mostly fainted. And the people were like, you know, like, what's wrong with you? And they said, you know, if you're going to work here, you need to get your blood type because sometimes we need blood. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll just have to get a different job. They actually conceded. I never did give blood. As a matter of fact, to this day, I have no idea what my blood type is. Yeah, because I know once I know my blood type, somebody could maybe want it. And I'm not so thinking I want to share my blood. So that's another aspect of life. Uh, many of the people that I worked with, I know have passed. I got tremendous help and introduction to training and uh, keeping of dogs from Jake and Sally Huzangas from Salinas, California. They um, ran the Irish Setter Club and knew uh, Bill Keeler personally. And I got to meet the Red Arrow dogs that were in the Disney movies that have been trained by Bill Keeler, um, the big red dogs. And Keeler trained a lot of the Disney animals, not just dogs. He sounded so tough. I'm going to tell you, the Red Arrow dogs were so intelligent and so well comported that he had to be a fantastic trainer. And I did end up getting a chance to talk to him once, but I never got a chance to actually work with Bill Keeler. But I did work with Jake Huzangas and with other trainers that had been trained directly by Bill. I learned so much. I showed dogs in 
you know, I AKC kennel shows. I groom dogs. I took care of kennels. I learned to train dogs. And I learned a fair amount about keeping game birds also. So thank you so much to Jake and Sally. They were still going strong in their 80s. I hope to emulate them. Anyway, who else? My gosh, there were so many. Oh, my brother from another mother, Emil Morneau. Emil, shout out to you. I love you. And I love Nancy. And I'm so glad we're in touch. Um, <laughs> when Emil calls me, he yells out, Hail Queen of the Rats. We worked together at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy. And Emil was the hardest working, fastest person I have ever seen. And he was a student at the College of Pharmacology and became an excellent pharmacologist. And I have gone to him more than once with questions. So fantastic guy. And uh, he taught me how to make ploys. And we make them to this day and love them. And he really messed up my French. You know, there's one thing that I've learned. First of all, um, uh, Emil at that time was from the Allagash, which is on the border between Canada and Maine. And they speak Quebecois kind of French. And it's really different than Parisian French, which I learned in school. And so whenever Emile spoke French to me, which I often requested he did, just so I could practice a little bit, he would speak so freakingly fast that I could not process what he said as he said it. So I'd ask him, could you please slow down lentement, doucement, s'il vous plaît? Blah, 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 blah. It would just get faster. And I was so confused because I'd never had a chance at that point to analyze the differences. So he may have spoke French, but he didn't know all French because he did not understand the words for slow down. Later on, I went to France, or, or to Quebec, Quebec and to Montreal and uh, worked there and they had a translator for me. But I had studied French for long enough and been in a few places to speak it and read it and all this kind of stuff. And so as I listened to the people asking the questions, I would just spontaneously start to answer them back. But I would answer them in Parisian French, or my version of it at least, right? And uh, finally, the hostess says with a rather pained voice, Casey, could you please speak in English so we can understand you? Okay. Later on, I went back there and they said, wow, your accent has really improved. So my accent had become more Quebecois. And I knew now I was doomed because now I'd probably go to Paris and nobody would understand me there either. So um, there were other people at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy 
the doctor that hired me sadly has passed. Um, Helen, if you're out there, I would love to touch base. And uh, there were the, the people I worked with at the Franklin Park Zoo in Dorchester. Whoa, some adventures there. And that's where I really got to meet and kind of become friends with a kinkajou. And that's also where I almost got mugged. That's a, a story for another day. Anyway, if you're out there and you remember and you want to talk, you can email me. You can contact me through my website. You can uh, message me on Facebook, whatever. I would love to talk to you. So Jason, Kate, David, Reagan, Robbie, Haley, Becky, these are all people, oh my gosh, and Sharon, and Deb, and, and probably a lot of people whose names escape me at this exact moment. Please, let's get in touch. Maybe you could even come on the podcast and we could talk about what happened um, in your life and and you know your experiences wherever we work together. All right. I hope to hear from people. And I have been so curious about how you all, you know, went forward. And it's okay if you didn't go into, you know, animals. It still is part of your you know, it still empowered you, that experience. Um, oh, man, the name of this young lady skips my mind right now. But I remember two interns were talking and one asked the other one. I think she thought I didn't hear. She asked her, what's Casey like? And the other one said, well, kind of a benevolent tyrant. And... The other girl goes, well, I get the tyrant part. Well, I bet you they understand now why I was a tyrant. And when you have very young people, and some of the people were as young as 11 years old, and you're working with dangerous animals, you simply have to work. You have to have a tight ship just to keep everybody safe and to get it all done. Uh, they volunteers helped so much. They would usually process all the fish and that was 450 pounds every morning and scrub up afterwards. And they um, all learned to you know, train the animals and do the demonstrations. And really by the time they'd spent two years there, they were ready to work in a, in a very highly skilled environment. In fact, they, some of them were ready to lead in those environments already. And my policy was to micromanage until I got a chance to have them demonstrate their abilities, not just their abilities to do it, but just like with the diving, I probably learned this from Rick Matthews, um, under stress, now you have to be able to do and think when conditions aren't optimal because that's what you know that's where we live 
So, yeah, if you felt that way, come back. I don't hold it against you. I'd love to talk to you. Hey, thank you, everybody. You know what? I'm going to even extend that. If if you were certified uh, sometime in the past and we haven't talked in a while, we've got resources for you. And even if you don't want those resources, let's say you changed business or you want to do things a different way, I still would love to talk to you. I'd love to hear from you. And, uh, but I do hope you'll like the resources. I think they're going to be really great for people. All right, more on that another time. Thank you, everybody. Take care and see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, fans. Are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Cover on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.